Mauricia's brief whispered report had been terrifying. The old familiar panic tightened Gavin's chest. First had been news from all over the Satrapies. Twelve sea demons swimming together in three precise ranks of four, circling all of Abornia five times before disappearing. A sheet of ice covering all of Crater Lake by Kelfing, though it was too warm. Herds of wild goats a thousand strong, standing all in precise rows. Poets struck dumb. Musicians writing a hundred pages of notation in a day, forgetting to eat or drink or sleep until they fell unconscious. Galley slaves rowing until they died, afraid of falling out of tempo. Captains plotting out constellations instead of piloting, running onto rocks. Mothers engaged in menial tasks, abandoning their mewling infants until the tasks were complete. There was a certain irony to order going out of control, but it wasn't one the dead would appreciate. And that wasn't the worst. The alarm on the blue hadn't gone off. Mauricia hadn't known that Dason had broken out. When was the last time Gavin had checked that mechanism? A year? A year and a half? In the third year of Dazen's imprisonment, hoping it would alleviate his terrible nightmares, Gavin had built in fail-safes. He thought. If Dazen broke into any prison, that very action was supposed to activate a glowing warning at the top of the chute, the alarm. Either Mauricia had been turned, no, the shock on her face had been real, or Gavin's mechanism had failed. If the chutes hadn't switched over, Dazen would have starved to death by now. Gavin had made it so that if Dazen tried to throw Luxon up the chute, it would switch it over as well. But if one mechanism had failed, others might have too. Damn it. He hadn't made them to last forever. Luxon decayed even in darkness. And he'd crafted almost every part of the prisons from Luxon. If he's dead, I'd have felt it, wouldn't I? I knew something was wrong when Sebastian died. Surely... The lift shuddered to a stop, just a couple floors down. Not many people had the keys to stop the prism's lift. It was Grinwoody, giving his thin, unpleasant smirk, happy to interrupt. He extended a hand, silently. Gavin took the note from the slave. He already knew what it was going to say. Son, come to my chambers. This is not a request. First, it was Kippen's Samite in his room, keeping him from checking the chute's alarm immediately. Then it was the emergency meeting. Now this. But there was nothing for it. If Dazen had escaped, he was long gone by now. If he'd been starved, he was dead by now. Or Holem have mercy. This put the Whites' talk about Dazen Gao coming to save them in a different light, didn't it? They knew. They'd been working to free him all along. Peace, Gavin. Patience. If it's done, it's done. If not, don't tip off the most cunning man in the world by acting strangely. He went with Grinwoody. There was nothing to be gained by putting it off. He wouldn't be any more ready to face off with the tyrant later, and time wasn't going to make Androskyle's anger cool. Indeed, getting to him now, when he was still fresh in his fury and hadn't had time to plan his vengeance, might be best. Gavin made his way into the dark room. The air was oppressive, hot. He hated it in here. Even illuminated with a superviolet lantern, there was a darkness here that clung to the bones and weakened the will. Gavin? Father? You stabbed me in the back in there. Andros relished this, Gavin realized. There was nothing left to the old man now except proving his mastery, and there was no game that could compare to Gavin challenging him. Andros was also certain that he would win, which frightened Gavin. I did what you taught me, father. Stuck up for some wandering wretches from Tyria? Won. I won. That earned some silence. So you get your own satrap, by itself worthless. 
This new Tyria may not even survive. So you get a vote on the Spectrum you can count on for a couple of years. No subtlety, though. If you want to own colors, there are better ways. Why did you defy me? Funny. That was exactly my question for you. Why oppose me, father? What do you care if we fight or not? It's not like anyone's going to ask you to take the field. What do you care if I become Promachus again? What could be better for our family? You forget who asks the questions here. Gavin sat in one of the old armchairs. Once regal, it was now shabby. So you've been playing Nine Kings with Kip. How good is he? Andros smiled. A rictus bent upward. <laughs> After the war, you lost your focus, Gavin. You could have been as good as me. Now you're running out of time, and you'll never be my equal. I'm sorry I misjudged you. Misjudged me? There's an understatement. You saggy droid monster. Mother took one look at me after Sundered Rock and knew me. You've talked to me a thousand times since and still don't know me. You never knew me, you blind old fool. You don't know what it does to me to consider that I might not be like you. It's time for you to marry. Gavin had thought the old man might have forgotten. He himself nearly had. It was a shot in the gut. I'll only marry one woman. I'm only asking you to marry one. You've got five years. If you can give me four sons, perhaps one of them will have a spine on which I'll have a chance at rebuilding this family. I have a son. Kip, who is actually his brother's son. What a horrible mess. A bastard? He will be pushed aside in due time. Until your true heirs reach majority, Kip will serve in other ways. To serve as a focus for other families' assassination attempts and so forth. But Kip will never carry this family's name forward. What's your master plan, then? I was going to give you your choice of a wife. There were three strong contenders from families wealthy enough or connected in useful ways, and the girls young enough to give you children quickly. Young enough to be malleable, solicitous. You mean you could control them after I die? Of course. You bet a strong-willed woman and she might steal your future and disappear. Gavin froze. From the tone and the smile, the sentence was meant to be a knife under his armor, under Gavin's armor. And he had no idea what his father was talking about. Say the wrong thing and he'll know. So he said nothing, as if stricken, which he was, if for the wrong reasons. The knife. It has something to do with the knife. Are you curious who they were? Please. Your little temptress Anna Jorvis, Naftali Delara, and Eva Goldenbriar. I was even going to add Liv Danavis if you'd managed to save Garriston with her father's help. Of course, now you've bound the Danavis clan to us forever in another way, so it's a moot point. Regardless, now you've destroyed that choice for yourself. I'll give you this, son. You present me with interesting challenges. Father, speaking of moot, all of this is moot. I'm not going to marry... Tysis Malagos. Pardon? She's 19. Not so young she'll get pregnant if you sneeze at her. But young enough to bear quickly. Pretty, too, or so Grinwoody says. Her older sister Irene took over the family's financial affairs after Devani didn't come back from the war. Brilliant merchant, Irene. She's built the family into a financial juggernaut, and the dowry she's promised for Tysis, whilst enormous, pales in comparison to the wealth Tysis will inherit when Irene dies. What? Why would Tysis inherit from her sister? Irene's a tribalist, and not fond enough of children to get on her back for any man. 
Smart enough, though, to carry on flirtations with many men in order to secure better business deals for herself. And she thinks to keep us in line if her sister does marry you. In this, she's partly correct. There will be no divorce or flagrant affairs while you are married to Tysis, Gavin. What? Gavin still hadn't processed the first part. His father wanted him to marry Tysis? She was the woman who'd sabotaged Kip's testing. She was the woman Gavin had just thrown out of the spectrum. Or Holm have mercy. Gavin's mother had confessed to ordering Dervani murdered, because he knew Dason's secret. And now his father wanted him to marry a woman whose father, Felia Guile, had murdered. You see the beauty of it. Irene holds her inheritance against us, and we hold Kip against her. If she leaves our family to inherit everything, we disown Kip. It's not the only card we have to play, but it is always a good idea to make your opponent pay you to sacrifice a card you didn't want to play anyway. In purely tactical terms, Gavin saw the appeal, not to his family, but to himself. Tysis was a beautiful woman, who might still be turned into a friend, rather than the enemy he thought he just made. And by doing this, he'd keep his father from destroying Kip. At least he would buy Kip time. Gavin's own time was drawing to a close, and there would be no one to protect Kip when he was gone. And if Gavin died before Andros did, Kip would need that protection. But... Father... Why don't you turn your mind to helping me for once? The only woman I'll consent to marry is Karis White Oak. And she brings what to this family? A few barren estates? A family alliance is allowed to wither while she plays blackguard? Don't be ridiculous. It's her, or it's no one. You were always my favorite, son, Gavin. Thought I saw myself in you. Thought I saw Will in you. Perhaps I shouldn't complain too bitterly that you turn it against me now. Though you have good reasons not to. You remember what we did to make you, Prism. You owe everything you are to me, son. So now, either you do exactly what I tell you, or the cost will be more swift and grievous than you can imagine. Gavin got up without saying a word. Son, let me hear you say it. Say you'll obey me in this. Gavin walked to the door, parted the dark curtains, and stepped through out of the cloying darkness. Andros sounded old. He sounded weak. Gavin! Good evening. Gavin didn't recognize either Blackguard that was standing guard at his room. They were young, maybe 18. They looked like children. And when 18-year-old men look like children to you, it's a sure sign that you're getting old. What did you do when you were 18, Gavin? Too much. But that was a distraction. Here were two blackguards he didn't know, despite knowing all the blackguards. Two blackguards, alone with him. This was how assassination attempts began. He'd been warned. The men saluted him. Lord Prism! What are your names? Gill and Gavin Grayling, sir. Brothers, of course. He should have picked it up. Gavin? Yes, sir. Named after Gavin... After our mother saw that he was a bit ill-favored, my lord. Hey! <laughs> of the two, Gavin was definitely the more handsome. The younger Grayling looked relieved that the prism had laughed. I'm sorry my brother is horrifying, my lord. It is a real honor to serve you. A lifelong dream, my lord. An honor to have you in my service, Gavin. And even you, Gil. You two just raised? A blackguard named after him. Good or Holum. He was getting old. And going blind to prove it. Uh, yes, my lord. Doesn't the commander usually have a veteran accompany the newly raised? Yes, sir. With the personnel we lost at Garrison, it's been hard to cover all the shifts.
Gavin looked at each man in turn, widened his eyes momentarily to see how hot each looked. Both were pretty warm, nervous. Of course, with no baseline, and it being the first time they talked to him, that told him little. Well, good night. Mauricia! It was late. She might have gone to her bed in the little side room, more a closet, really. But she didn't answer, which she wouldn't if she'd betrayed him. Behind him, Gavin Grayling was closing the doors. Um, she left about an hour ago, sir. She often worked late into the night when he returned from trips, giving him the most up-to-date reports the next morning and arranging the most pressing business on his schedule. And if she was loyal, she'd been doing everything she could to investigate her failure. Yes, that was Mauricia. That was the heart of the woman, dutifully looking to correct any error, even when it meant she'd forget that when he came home, he wanted her here. She didn't have betrayal in her. Ah, shit. Is there anything we can do, my lord? Gavin leveled a bemused gaze on the boy. I've been traveling for the past four months with a woman I find incredibly seductive, but whom I can never have. So, no. I'm afraid that the duty I have for my room slave to perform is not one I would ask of you. <laughs> Are you talking about Watch Commander... <coughs> Ow! Gil slammed the butt of his spear onto his brother's foot. Oh, oh, uh, I'm sorry, sir. Would you like one of us to go summon her? Her, the slave, I mean, my lord, not her, the Watch Commander. Although I suppose... Uh, <clears throat> Even though they were offering, Gavin knew he wasn't supposed to treat the Blackguard as his fetch and carry boys. It would quite possibly get these young men into trouble for having volunteered it. No, he'd spent the time talking with them to gain some rapport and to make sure they weren't assassins. He wasn't going to throw away that rapport just for his complaining loins, but it was close. He shook his head. The doors closed behind him, and he shuffled toward the painting. He was exhausted, and there was a ball of despair swelling in his stomach. He looked at the painting closely, examined the hidden hinge, Saw no sign of tampering. The frame of the painting needed a new coat of paint, though. The oils on his fingers had worn one edge smooth. He would have to disguise that. He pulled the frame open. The panel under which sat the liquid yellow Luxon was undisturbed, inert until the alarm injected air into it to make it glow faintly. The alarm hadn't gone off. He drafted Superviolet and reached deeper, pushed the Superviolet into the Hellstone panel, Felt the brush of the filaments he'd left there, so thin they'd tear at the slightest touch. So thin they'd tell him if anyone had tampered with this. He felt the mechanism. It was undisturbed. For one wild moment, he thought that it was all a mistake. Dazen was still in the blue prison. Nothing had gone wrong. He'd merely panicked because he'd lost blue. Because he'd had a bad dream about Dazen escaping, which he'd been fearing for 16 years, so that was no wonder, in the aftermath of losing blue. Except that the third eye had said his brother had broken out of blue, too. But fortune tellers are often wrong, right? Not her. Gavin drafted deeper down to the chute. It had moved over. It had moved to green. So Dazen had broken out of blue, but he was still stuck in green. The blue alarm had failed, but eventually Dazen had gotten food. He'd been getting blue bread in the green prison, but he hadn't broken out. Either the green had made him too wild to think clearly enough, or the blue bread, when illuminated by green light, had been too spectrally close to give him usable luxon. He was in green, and he was alive. Dazen could never be counted out, but it wasn't a catastrophe. Not yet. The enormous weight didn't quite lift from Gavin's shoulders, but it shifted to a more comfortable position. This was one emergency, at least, that could wait until the morning. He wasn't ready to face Dazen. 
not after this day. He'd rest and gather his wits, and then face his brother. Tomorrow. He walked to his desk, took the folded shimmer cloaks and the deck box, and tucked them in a closet. <sighs> more problems for tomorrow. There were always more problems for tomorrow. He went to his bed, stripping off his clothes. He threw them willy-nilly, suddenly peeved. Where was Marissia anyway? What does one have a room slave for if not for some damned companionship once in a while? Schedules could wait. He wanted her here. He cursed, feeling peevish and petty. Truth was, he was angry at Karis for being so damned intractable. And he missed Marissia, and not only for her admirable bed skills. He didn't want to sleep alone tonight. He wanted to hold her body, to feel the soft comfort of her curves, to wake and embrace her, and then sleep again. He wanted to take her in the bath in the morning, and then have her comb his hair, anoint him with oils, dress him, and send him off to conquer the world again with a clear head. Instead, she was off doing whatever it was she did when she wasn't serving him. That was ungracious. Unfair. Most of the time that Mauricia spent away from this room was to serve him. He crawled under the covers and thought dark thoughts for a few more seconds, then surrendered to sleep. In the middle of the night, Gavin must have gotten hot and thrown the covers off because he felt cold. Foggy-headed, he reached a hand to pull the blankets back on him, but then he felt the sweep of long hair over his thigh, and then a kiss. She took his hands and tucked them firmly at his sides, telling him not to interfere. Oh, Marissia, if a man could fall in love with a slave. Marissia pleasured him like she did everything, efficiently and well. She'd done this before when he'd come back from trips, and she'd been out when he got back, or even just when she'd sensed that he was hungry for the pleasures of the flesh. She would wake him rapidly and pleasantly, and then ride him to a quick climax. It was like providing a meal on the march. She satisfied his hunger as quickly as possible, and interfered as little as possible with the business at hand. In this case, his sleep. Funny woman, but Gavin wouldn't trade her for the world. Having roused him with admirable dispatch, Marissia crawled up Gavin's body. He reached for her breasts, but she grabbed his hands and pushed them above his head. She lowered herself onto him a little at a time, and the pleasure of it almost blotted out all thought for Gavin. But he opened his eyes. Marissia rarely moaned. The room was dark. Gavin could, of course, change that. But pleasure blotted out will. It had been so long. When she settled fully on him, though, even without hands, without sight, he knew this wasn't Marissia. As he came out of his stupor, it became more and more obvious. He knew Marissia's body, how she moved, the smell of her arousal and the smell of her perfume. And this was not that perfume. As his succubus began to rock her hips rhythmically, Gavin was entranced by the competing soporifics of pleasure and memory. Karis almost never wore perfume. Only one day a year, and then only when she couldn't get out of it. She only wore perfume to the Luxlord's Ball. This perfume. Oh, mercy. That was how she'd gotten into his room. The Blackguards knew they weren't supposed to allow anyone in. But they wouldn't stop Karis. Especially not after Gavin had told them that. Ooh. The very thought that it was Karis brought Gavin fully awake and flamed him. His succubus was a little awkward, like she didn't really know what she was doing. Karis had only had two lovers that he'd heard about, and neither of them for long. She hadn't had all that much practice. Still, in most things, she was more coordinated than this. Gavin brought his hands to the softness of her hips to help guide her. Karis, 
After 16, soft, Karis's hips? A woman could be incredibly fit and still carry a little softness on her hips, of course, but he stopped guiding her, but she only ground against him harder. The door opened, and a woman bearing a lantern walked in. Uh, watch, Captain! Uh, I really think you... The light from the lantern showed Kara standing at the foot of Gavin's bed. The same light threw his succubus into shadow. <laughs> Nor did the woman atop Gavin stop, grinding lascivious hips against him for several long, deliberate seconds after she must have become aware there were others in the room. Karis flung the lever that opened the brightwater panels on the walls, flooding the room with light. For one second, Gavin saw nothing as the light blinded him. Then, as his eyes adjusted, the young woman atop him was illuminated fully. Anna Jorvis, the student from the Superviolets class. Anna, the little temptress who tried to sneak into his bed before. Mm. <gasps> you mind? <gasps> she was unashamed of her nudity before both Karis and the young blackguards. Unabashed at being interrupted in CODIS. Even proud, defiant, haughty. But Gavin had no thought for her. He was staring at Karis, who looked suddenly dead. Her hair hung around her shoulders, not just loose, but carefully combed and curled. The rouge on her cheeks was the only thing that livened her pallid pallor. Her lips, too, were rouged. Karis never wore makeup. She was wearing a fine cloak that he'd never seen before, and where it was open as her hand held the lantern, Gavin saw lace. A lace chemise. Karis, midnight, his bedchamber. She had been planning to... I said, do you mind? My lord and I are occupied. Anna took one of Gavin's hands from where it sat limp on her hip and pressed it to her full breast. The breast she hadn't let him touch earlier, lest he realize who she was. Karis bolted. Damn it! Gavin flung Anna off and ran after Karis, going right past the aghast Grayling brothers. Karis! Karis had already gone down the lift. He hung out over the lift shaft ignoring the blackguards guarding it. She'd stopped one level down, the blackguard barracks. My lord! Don't even try to stop me! Samite held her hands up. Peace. She tossed him her cloak to cover himself. Good luck, sir. Gavin tied the cloak around his waist and jumped into the lift shaft. He dropped down one level. He swung out of the shaft and stormed toward the women's side of the blackguard barracks. The door was closed. Karis! But as he approached, a dozen blackguards, most of them only half-dressed, formed ranks seamlessly in front of the door. They made a wall in front of him. That's far enough, my lord. Tremblefist was one of the half-dressed ones, and even though he wasn't quite as big as Iron Fist, he was still bigger than Gavin. Enormous pectorals, shoulders broad enough to close the ever-dark gates. Out of my way! They said nothing, merely held ranks. Damn you all, you can't stop me! Yes, we can. Now, please, sir, leave. Leave before you shame your faithful servants any more than you already have. We've new men in our company. They can't understand. Ah! Gavin stormed out. The ride up one floor wasn't enough to cool his rage. His young blackguards watched him closely, aghast, but said nothing as he strode past them and back into his room. Anna should have been on her knees, weeping and begging for forgiveness. Instead, she stood in artfully meretricious pose that Gavin recognized from a famous sculpture, the Maiden's Gift. She'd even put on a fine silk shift identical to the statue's. Back turned, hair spilling over her shoulder, curves in an S, the side of one breast visible. It was so obviously staged that Gavin would have laughed if he weren't so furious. Instead, it stoked the fires hotter. Oh, my lord, shall we continue? 
I've so many pleasures yet to share with you. Do you have any idea? I don't... I thought you were her! What? Her? Oh, she's all muscly and... and gross! Uh, Karis is old enough to be my mother! I mean, if you want a sparring partner, I'm sure she's wonderful. But a lover? <gasps> Betting her would be like fucking dust, that old bitch. He hit the lever that dropped all the windows in his room open and was on top of Anna in an instant. Malone, what are you doing? Gavin didn't even hear the blackguard. He grabbed a handful of the girl's hair, walking her backward out into the cold night. That bitch is the woman I love! Gavin flung Anna from him. Flung her so hard that she hit the railing of the balcony and flipped right over it. And fell. Kevin's heart stopped, and the wind stopped, but he didn't hear her land. Maybe something had broken her fall. Maybe someone had saved her. A fool's hope, and Gavin knew it. Rushing to the edge of his balcony, he looked over. Or Holem have mercy. Hundreds of feet below, Anna had landed head first. Her body had crumpled all the wrong ways. From here she looked like a grape popped between your fingers, all the skin gathered, and juices everywhere. Mm. My lord! Gavin turned and saw his two young blackguards, but the looks on their faces told him that Anna wasn't the only person who'd just fallen from heaven. He covered his face with his hands. He stepped back inside, and one of the blackguards, wide-eyed, closed the windows. Gavin sat on his bed, conscious for the first time of his near-nakedness. Go tell who you have to tell. I'll be here. Of course, he lied. When the pounding started on the door of the women's side of the barracks, Karis thought it had to be Gavin come back again, but the voice was Watch Captain Blademan's. Hey! Why is this door locked? I said all hands on, dammit! I don't care if you're naked or in the shitter, I mean now! Karis threw the door open, instantly alert. Tears forgotten. What is it? Watch Captain Blademan looked at her. The cloak not covering her chemise, not covering her makeup, her perfume, her coiffed hair, her eyes puffy from crying. He hesitated only a moment, working through his surprise, then decided that whatever this was, it could wait. All hands on, Karis. You need it upstairs immediately. Some girl just took a dive off the prism's balcony. She's dead. We think he threw her. Gavin stared at the moon drafting its feeble light slowly. His plan was simple, to draft a rope and dangle it out the window, making them think he'd escaped. But he couldn't draft green or blue now. A rope was impossible. As he turned the problem over, he grabbed fresh clothes from his closet and got dressed. He could, he supposed, draft a yellow chain, but that would beg them to ask why he would choose to draft only yellow, which was much more difficult and time-consuming. Questions like that could be more deadly than killing a powerful nobleman's daughter. He pushed that out of his mind. No time. Just an open window, then. Then Gavin saw the shimmer cloaks in his closet. He threw on the larger cloak. He knew the choker had to be important, so he put it on, drew it snug. He hated having things around his neck, and there were cold metal ridges along the inside that dug into his skin unpleasantly. He stepped in front of a mirror. He was still very much visible. He drew the cloak closed, still visible. He closed his eyes and imagined being invisible, willed it, desired it, lusted after it, believed it, cracked an eye, still there. 
Kevin drafted instinctively to defend himself. Daggers stabbed into his neck from either side. What felt like a sheet of flame shot up and down his body. Cheeks hot, scalp aflame, chest burning, arms burning, legs burning. Then the heat passed, leaving tingling. And the tingling turned to sensitivity, like a tooth shy of a cold drink. He looked into the mirror and saw through himself. His face was visible, and a V of his neck where the cloak wasn't fully closed. The collar had injected two needles into his neck. Gavin pulled the cloak fully closed and found there were tiny hooks hidden in the fabric to keep the hood closed even over his face. Only his eyes remained. The rest of him was translucent. Not perfectly transparent, but like looking through a dirty window. In low light, it would be more than acceptable. If he stayed still against a wall, it'd be perfect. But moving fast in good light, he'd be easy to spot. Sir, please let us in. Gavin ducked his head to see if he could hide his hives under the flap of the hood and thus be functionally invisible. When he did that, he saw nothing at all. Blackness so deep it struck a visceral fear into him. So if he fell under piercing scrutiny, he'd have to make himself blind in order to be fully invisible. Lovely, terrifying. The window was already open. Gavin stood against a wall next to the door. Lord Prism, we've come to take you to the Spectrum. Please open the door, my lord. Thanks for the warning, old friend. The Blackguards opened the door moments later. They had keys, of course. Iron Fist led six men in. Check the balcony. Gavin snuck through the open door right behind them. The wind gusting through the open window in the hall made the cloak flutter around his leg. But no one saw anything. He made it into the hall. From there, instead of heading for the lift, he walked the other way and went to the stairs leading out to the roof. He cracked the door open, dealt with another quick gust of wind, and slipped out quickly. It was still hours before dawn. Gavin sat on a bench out of sight of the door. He had to see how bad things were before he did anything. But sitting, thinking, that was dangerous. Or hold him have mercy. He'd murdered that stupid girl. He rubbed his face. He wished he felt worse, but it wasn't his first murder. He'd been murdering people every year in that damned barbaric ritual, hearing their sins and stabbing them in the heart. What was one more soul on his tally? If he looked harder at that girl, doubtless he'd find out some pathetic tale. Like Anna's family was on the brink of financial ruin, and she hoped that by seducing him they would be saved. Or that his father had blackmailed her into going to Gavin's bed so he could then blackmail Gavin. Andros had said that Anna was in the list of contenders for a marriage, hadn't he? Or... It didn't matter. What she'd done, why, how she'd gotten past his guards. It might have been a conspiracy. More likely, it was simply miscommunication and inexperience. But Gavin didn't usually lose control of himself like that. He was steady, logical. For Holm's sake, Gavin was the whole man. Was, had been, no longer. He'd lost Blue. That wasn't merely a magical fact. Maybe it was a personal fact as well. He'd lost the cold, hard, passionless practicality of Blue. There'd been no reason to kill the girl. Nothing but passion and hatred had impelled him to do such a thing. Passion and hatred, unbridled by reason. The loss of his powers wasn't the only loss of power. Gavin was becoming less. Less in control, less intelligent, less of a man. He'd thrown a girl off his balcony. What kind of a man did that? He hadn't meant to, but that didn't matter. He'd done it. And maybe he had meant to do it. And he'd lost Karis. 
She'd come to his room at midnight, dressed to make love. His heart was in his throat. Or Holm have mercy. He didn't know what she'd been doing, why she'd come now when they'd had every opportunity for months. But she'd come. Everything would be perfect if he'd done anything differently. Had he not charmed his guards and told them he wanted companionship? Had he awakened earlier? Had he stopped an unknown woman before she mounted him, perhaps? I saw what I wanted to see, just like I always do. And my self-delusion cost me the real thing. He wondered how long it would be before he lost Yellow. How long before he lost the rest. It was another eight months until the freeing. When he'd found out he'd lost Blue, he thought he could make it that long. That wasn't going to happen. He knew that now. He thought of his goals. Lucidonius, were things so bleak for you when the earth trapped you in a house valley? Did you doubt yourself then? Or were you as willful as the tales tell? Were you just a man? You changed the world. But is this what you wanted to change it to? Gavin had murdered his own mother, and she'd thanked him for it. What kind of broken world was this? She thanked him for it. He remembered that artist, that damned genius addict artist. What was his name? Ahayad Brightwater. He'd given the boy a name and murdered him. Giving scraps with one hand and taking away everything with the other. And Ahayad had thanked him. Gavin had failed Garriston, lost them their city, their possessions, the lives of many they'd cared about. And they worshipped him as a god. They loved him. How was he the only man who saw what he was? There were no answers to be found in the waning stars. Like there were no gods, no Orholum, no light in the witching hour. He could survive this, couldn't he? Maybe if Anna Jorvis had been a slave. She wasn't. Her father owned more than half of the barges that plied the Great River, and her mother was heiress of the Greenvale's sister. Heiress, the subred, a former ally, passionate, and not averse to war. Eris had loved Anna. Eris would make destroying the man who'd murdered her niece her life's work. With her passion and the recklessness that only having a couple of years of life left engendered? Hell, even Gavin losing her votes on the spectrum meant nothing was possible. It was all over. The sun finally gripped the horizon with bloodied fingernails and pulled itself up. Gavin walked over to the great crystal mounted on its swivel and as the sunlight finally descended on him like Orholum's heavy hand, he pulled off his shimmer cloak and dropped it at his feet, then pulled off the dust cover and put his hands onto the great cold rock. He extended himself, feeling, sensing the light. He couldn't see the blue, but he could feel it. It wasn't precisely out of balance. Blue was about equal with red right now, but it was out of control. It felt uneven, a checkerboard of total chaos and excruciating control. He could feel a knot, though, tiny, far out into the Cerulean Sea, maybe not even in physical form yet, knitting itself back together, floating like one of the fabled glaciers from the great seas beyond the Everdark Gates. Gavin had destroyed the Bane, but it would never be finished. In six months, there would be another. He could destroy Bane after Bane, but they would slowly heal, build themselves anew, until a real prism tamed them again. Then, he felt the green. There was no order there, no clear checkerboard. Green was running rampant, but only in random streaks. The verdant plains were blooming now, in autumn, because a huge streak of verdure covered them. Then, gaps, 
Huge blooms of algae in the sea, empty spaces, and then another knot just forming to the southwest. What was that? Orholum, just outside Rio, right in the path of the Color Prince's advancing army. Both knots, whatever they were, were very slowly growing. Putting his will into the great crystal, Kevin tried to balance, tried to impose the happy harmony on the entire world, as he had done so many times before. This was what he was made for. This was what he had done over and over, not even needing the crystal. This was his genius, his purpose, his aristia. Nothing. Vacuum. Emptiness. Lack. He was merely a man. Merely a man pushing on a rock, as if he thought he could squeeze liquid dreams out of it by wishing. A fool. It was over. He was finished. A prism who couldn't balance was nothing. And without a prism who could balance, the world was doomed. The problems would only get worse. Things would go back to the way they had been before Lucidonius. Gods being born, drafters flocking to the god of their color, trying to become gods themselves, and every god at war with every other. The world itself torn by massive storms that lasted decades, the sea choked and dead, monstrous beasts roaming the plains, glaciers spilling through the mountains to abut directly on deserts. Starvation, privation, and constant war over scarce resources that might disappear completely in the very next year. Nations broken down to tribes and clans, cities burned, libraries burned, civilization ended. If only half of what they said the world was like without prisms was true, it would be a cataclysm to dwarf all others. Gavin sat and wrapped himself in the warmth of the cloak, drifting in and out of consciousness. And slowly, it came to him. In this insane world where nothing was as it was supposed to be, Gavin Guile wasn't the only prism. The tightness in his chest told him what he had to do. Even his own selfishness must have an end. Gavin stood, turned his back on the light, and went to see his brother. Dazen knew time was against him. Surely Gavin must have some way of knowing when he broke through his prisons. Gavin? Dazen? Even I'm confused. Dazen, though younger, had always been the smarter brother. Well, I'm Dazen now, and I'll outsmart you this time. Dazen considered the easy way first. He could lay a plank of sealed green Luxon on top of the Hellstone in the hallway. So long as the Luxon was sealed, the Hellstone wouldn't leech it, at least not quickly. If done in many layers and many trips, he should be able to take green all the way to the next prison. If the next hallway was as long as the first, given how weak Dazen was now, it would probably be two or three days' work. Did he have two or three days? He'd taken months to get this far. What was a couple more days? He didn't know. Maybe it would be all the difference in the world. Maybe Gavin had met some grisly end out there and it made no difference at all. Did Gavin think that his prisoner would be so inflamed by green that he would just charge down the hallway like a mad dog seeking freedom? No. That wasn't how Gavin worked. He would know that Dazen, having been tricked into losing his Luxon when he moved between the blue prison and the green one, would be extra cautious here. Surely the first thing Gavin would have thought of was the first thing Dazen was thinking of now. And having thought of it, Gavin would have a plan. Gavin would have some kind of trap waiting. 
Once Dazen moved down that hallway, something would happen that would rob him of the green Luxon. So Dazen sat, thinking. The trigger on the trap, for surely, surely there must be a trap, might be at any point in that Hellstone Tunnel. Until Dazen had a plan, he'd be a fool to go into the tunnel looking for it. And he'd be a fool to sit too long waiting and planning. Gavin could be back at any moment, coming to visit, coming to gloat. How Dazen wanted to smash that monster's grinning face in. He sat and ate, casting his mind about, searching. Knowing it was second best, he got up after a while and stood at the mouth of that tunnel to hell, the tunnel to the yellow prison. Very carefully and very slowly, he drafted and sealed a long thin stick out of green luxon. He probed the mouth of the tunnel, looking for tripwires concealed in the darkness. No, this was hopeless. If he was paranoid, he'd never get out of here. He had to act boldly, had to take his own fate in his hands and smash through Gavin's plans, destroy them. He couldn't let himself be trapped here. He had to go now. He had to... <laughs> Slow down, Dazen. That's the green talking. You're weak. The Luxon has more power over you when you're exhausted and sick. Dazen released the green, emptied himself of it completely. Without it, he felt wrung out, unbearably tired. No, the weakness was too great. If he didn't take the green again, he'd sleep. And sleeping, he'd give Gavin time to come back. But if he took the green, he'd do something stupid, just as Gavin expected. He'd fall right into the next trap, and that might leave him in a worse place than ever before. A yellow prison could well be unbreakable. He'd been lucky in the green. Gavin had made a mistake letting him get blue bread. Dazen couldn't count on that twice. He needed to make that one mistake count. He imagined Gavin coming back down here, grinning that lopsided grin at him, taunting. Wait. When Gavin came down here, he had to traverse this geometrical space. Even without Luxon, Dazen felt a burst of energy, life. Gavin came down here. That meant he had tunnels. He came close enough that he could talk to Dazen. That meant those tunnels were very, very close. If Dazen could find one of those tunnels, he wouldn't simply get past the yellow prison, he'd break out of all of the prisons. He didn't have to break out of each in turn, he could simply leave. Then he started moving around the chamber, surrounding the great green egg that had been his prison, knocking on the walls. The hollow sound was like a choir singing the Sunday salutations. Going back to the green cell was like going back to scoop up his own vomit and eat it. But back he went. He clambered through the hole he'd made and grabbed the husk of his blue bread. He'd left all of the crust, broken open now, to give him the maximum surface from which to draft. He climbed back out of the green cell, but stood in its light. It took him another quarter of an hour to draft enough blue. It was a relief, though, when it came. The clarity of blue was a boon. He'd lived with blue for 16 years, and he needed it. With the blue slowly filling him, he became aware once again of how fragile his health was. It had only been months since his fever had passed. The nasty cut across his chest had mostly healed in a nasty scar. His body had won the fight against the infection, but that didn't mean he was up to full strength. He didn't know how long he had. He needed to blast the wall open, draft green for the necessary strength, and go as fast and far as he could. Once he found a safe place, he could worry about healing. It was a gamble, and his blue self hated gambles, but this was a gamble he had to play or die. He thought of going back to the stone wall to knock again, to double check, but he didn't need to. 
He drafted blue for so long that he could practically see lines overlaying his vision that denoted the exact outline of the hollow space. He could envision the probable thickness of the stone. It was granite, and from some class he'd taken as a boy and had thought long lost, he remembered how granite broke. That was blue for you, dredging up details from your own mind that you couldn't believe you remembered. Granite broke in predictable wedges, X's at 60 degrees and 120 degrees. Of course, the blue couldn't tell him at what angle those wedges lay to him, so he braced himself and took hold of his right wrist in his left hand. He gathered his will. The first missile would need to be about the size of his thumb, or the granite might not crack and show him the appropriate angles. The breath tightened his stomach, chest, and diaphragm, gave tension at a stable firing platform, and a small animal boost to the will. Mechanics meets the beast. The blue bullet burst from him and smashed into the wall. No alarm sounded, at least none that he could hear. Dazen strode to the wall. It was too dark to see the whole well, but he traced his fingers around it, felt the fractures. <sighs> ah, tilted about 12 degrees. His blue-enhanced mind laid the lines out easily, compensated for the angles, picked out lines along which it would fracture, and exactly where he would have to shoot the next missiles to make the hole big enough to climb through, taking his place back far enough that he wouldn't get hit with a shrapnel, but would still easily hit his targets. Dazen braced himself, one foot back, turned, both hands up. Each hand would shoot two missiles simultaneously, there and there. The missiles blasted out from him, hitting the wall in a blue explosion as parts of the Luxon were torn back into light. Dust filled the tunnel. Dazen staggered over to the green cell and drew in liquid life. Looking at the hunks of blue bread at his feet, he had the passing thought that he should draft in blue as well, at least some, some thread. He ate the bread. There'd be plenty more blue where he was going. He needed the strength. A tiny part of him protested, but it was little and weak. He pushed through the dark hole into the dark tunnel. He drafted imperfect green into his hand. Green made lousy torches, and even in the state he was in, he knew not to use all of his Luxon up, just to make it slightly brighter. The tunnel, Gavin's tunnel, was simple, rough-hewn. It was a workspace, barely wide enough for a man. Not really wide enough for a man with a torch if he didn't want to risk burning the hell out of himself. Of course, Gavin would have used a Luxon torch. Oh, bastard. Dazen hesitated once inside the tunnel. One way might gently slope up, and the other seemed to gently slope down, but he couldn't be certain. His instinct was to choose the upward direction, but when he thought about it rationally, there was no guarantee that simply because this one tiny section of tunnel had a slope, that the slope continued all the way to the surface. Really, he had no idea which way was out. If he went the wrong way, of course, he could simply turn around, but he'd be wasting time, time that might be valuable. And he'd certainly be wasting energy, and even with the green alive inside him, he knew his bucket had holes in the bottom of it. He was emaciated, unhealthy underneath the veneer of wild energy green lent him. So he forced himself to hold still, wait. The blue saved him. He wasn't drafting it, but it had changed him in all those years. He stayed still and held his meager green light. The granite dust, still settling from the explosion and still settling from his own passage into the tunnel, now resumed its natural patterns. There was a slight breeze between the two newly connected passages, too slight for Dazen to feel on his skin, but enough to see the dust slide into the tunnel and up. 
up. If the wind was blowing that way, that was the way that was open. That was his way out. Dazen went up. Up was good. Up was out. Up was out. Dear gods. Up was out. Here's what I'm curious about. Tia and Kip sat down in Kip's room. She was tired and her hair was askew from training with Karis White Oak. I think Aram is the second best fighter in the scrubs. He's the tall kid, uh, muscular. And fast! And a yellow-green bichrome. He's gotten some unlucky matchups, but I'm wondering if he's playing Sand Spider. Sand Spider? Hiding in his hole so he can jump out at exactly the right time. He is a yellow. Maybe he thinks that he's another Arad. When you use one reference, I don't know to explain another I don't know. Arad was a blackguard 70, 80 years ago now. He entered at the bottom of his class at 49. And each month at testing, he barely made it into the next month. 49 to 35 to 28 to 14. And then on the last week, he beat everyone. Turned out he'd taken a vow or something. So on the last week, he thought, what? 14 to 11, 11 to 8, 8 to 5, 5 to 2, and 2 to 1? A holem's balls has a lot of fights. I can't imagine facing the best guy in the class after having already fought four times. It was one of the controls that the tests had built in. Someone could technically fight from the last place to the first, but because they had to fight again immediately until they stopped winning fight tokens, the exhaustion piled on. And with each new fight, the challenger would be facing someone who was fresh. Kip, Erad didn't skip fighters. He beat all of them. From 14, he challenged 13. From 13, 12. You're kidding. That's the story. Karis did almost what you said until she faced Fisk. She finished third after four fights, and Fisk barely got her, they say. With all his study of magic and history in the cards, Kip almost despaired as he saw that there was another gigantic area of lore that he hadn't even touched. The histories of the great blackguards. Tia picked up Kip's slate and began writing on it. So, how did Lucretia Verengetti take it when she lost you? I never even heard how the Red got her to give up your title. I don't know. I haven't seen her since then. Don't want to. Tia shrugged, then pointed to the slate quickly. This is what I think the true ranking of the blackguard scrub should be. What do you think? There was something about how she'd glossed over her slavery that caught Kip's attention. But then he got caught up in looking at the slate. Tia had Cruxer at first, Aram at second, second, herself at twelfth, and Kip at eighteenth. He raised an eyebrow at her. Um, sorry. Maybe you could do better than that. You're apologizing for the wrong thing. I don't belong at 18, do I? He'd put himself around 20th. <clears throat> You're a polychrome, Kip. It makes a big difference. Huge if you use it right. Kip scowled. A polychrome. They'd guessed that for a while. A full-spectrum polychrome? That was different. Totally different. And yet, with missing the practicum every day, he didn't have nearly the skills he should have. In truth, as Tia had told him, if he really was a full-spectrum polychrome, all sorts of things would be different. They wouldn't let him be a blackguard unless Gavin intervened. He was too valuable. And they would want him to marry, young. It still wasn't understood what made drafters, but enough people believed that drafters had children who could draft that the pressure for drafters to have children was intense. And more intense for the more gifted. Unless you got as powerful as Gavin Guile and you could do whatever you wanted, and everyone else could go to hell. But Kip didn't want to think about all that right now. 
He went back to looking at the rankings. How did you even arrive at this? Paying attention? Watching? First, you have to take into account that everyone wants to finish as high as possible, but at least in the top 14. People also have friends that they don't want to knock out of the top 14, so lots of times people won't challenge three up from themselves if that's where their friend is. Because win or lose, either they or their friend will lose their challenge token. It's less important in the top 10 where people will know they're safe. But people heading for getting kicked out aren't going to want to ruin their friends' chances. She started drawing lines. The person at the bottom goes first, so they might challenge the weakest person in the three above them. So let's say, Edo's at 20, challenges Asmon at 18, because even though he is allowed to challenge Ziri at 17, he thinks he can beat Asmon and not Ziri. If he wins, he moves up and then takes on Winston, hoping to get lucky. So now the new person at 20 is more likely to challenge Asman, who is now at 19, even though there's only one place up. Why? Because Asman's already lost. He's got no challenge token, so he knows he can't make it in this season at all. He won't fight as hard because there's nothing at stake. See? You have to reshuffle the order every time someone wins and keep track of who has and who doesn't have the challenge token. That way, you can skip the more difficult fights. But of course, we have to keep in mind that some people will feign weaknesses until the last week, so they have an advantage. Like you. That was why Tia had wanted Kip to take credit for the courier idea. Yes, like me. Oh, hell no. No, 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 no. This is hopeless. I can't figure all this out. No, I'm tired of this. Forget it. I Kip, if you don't figure this out, you're not going to make it into the Blackguard. You're not a good enough fighter, so you need to be smarter than people who are better fighters than you. That is what people admired about Arad. The man who defeated all the other fighters in the Blackguard wasn't admired because he was a good fighter? I find that hard to believe. Kip, he was able to figure out exactly how to finish last every month and still make it in. That means he was figuring exactly who would challenge whom and who would win those fights every month. If he figured wrong once, he would have failed out early. So he's admired for losing intelligently. That's mad. He's admired for knowing his friends and knowing his enemies and outwitting them all. So what happened to him? He became commander of the Blackguard and saved the lives of four different prisms over the course of his career. And then someone poisoned him. So he wasn't perfect. He was perfect for 24 years. That's a lot longer than most of us can even dream. Kip could tell that somehow the dead commander meant a lot to Tia. Don't pout. We've got work to do. Hold on. Before we do all that, I want you to take your papers. You keep on avoiding this. Look, all you have to do is sign them, and we can take them to be registered tomorrow. Kip, don't be an idiot. What happens after you free me? Uh, you're free. And poor. Didn't we already talk about this? What happens when a slave gets into the blackguard, Kip? They're freed. Oh, sort of. They're purchased for a fortune. And as soon as a scrub passes the test, their contract goes into escrow until final vows. If you free me now, you get nothing. I don't want to own you, Tia. It doesn't feel right. Don't you even want to be in the Blackguard? Of course I do! I don't even know if I should believe you. You can't tell me that you don't, can you? What? I'm a slave, not a liar, Kip. It's more complicated than that, and we both know it. Tia looked at him like he was crazy for a long moment. Then the facade crumbled. One second she was all breezy confidence and happiness, and the next she looked terribly vulnerable and frightened. Kip, I've been thinking about this a lot, ever since you said you'd free me. You know that the first thing I felt was angry at you? 
Because as soon as you won me, I stopped getting my lessons in how to draft apparel. I'll get them again, but I'll have to wait years. Nothing in my life changed except that, and I was mad at you. Stupid, huh? Kip, part of me tells me to take those papers and run to the registrar. To take my freedom while it's sitting there in front of me. It tells me slave owners are notoriously fickle. Sorry. No offense taken. My family's in debt, Kip. My mother did some bad things and my father lost everything, including me and my sisters. He was a trader, like I said, but his creditors won't let him go on another voyage because they're afraid he'll flee. So he's stuck working as a day laborer. With what he's earning now, there's no way he can pay off what he owes. He can't even afford to buy inventory to trade at home. If I take those papers now, I'm condemning him to poverty. My sister's to early marriages to the first poor men my father can convince to take them. What happened? Please don't ask me that. But I already did. Oh, because she's my slave, if I insist, she'll have to answer. <clears throat> Forget it then. Sorry. You have a plan? Hold on to my title for a few more weeks. Then when I go through final vows, you give me a fifth of what the Blackguard pays for me. That way we both get something. And you'll need the money as badly as I do. I want to be a blackguard anyway, Kip. There's nothing in life I want more. This way, the Chromeria pays us for it. That's sort of brilliant. And what's the downside? I don't get to find out if you like me for me, or if you like me because you need the money, until after final vows. But that was purely selfish, wasn't it? He wanted her to pay for him to feel good about himself. See? But I want you to swear something to me, Kip. Anything. Swear that you won't sell me back to... That you won't sell me to anyone. I'll serve you in our off hours. I don't care. I've been a slave for years. I can do it for a few more weeks. Just promise that. I swear to Oholum on one condition. That you take half of what we get for your contract. Kip! You're a terrible negotiator! She grinned. And Kip was struck again by how different she was from Liv. Liv had lived in bitterness over her station which had been unjust, but it hadn't been as bad as being a slave. Maybe it was that Liv had seen how close a gloriously easy life had been, so she felt the sting of its loss. Or maybe Tia was simply naturally more positive, but if he had to go through bad and unfair stuff, he hoped that in the future he could be more like Tia and less like Liv. The thought somehow loosened something inside of Kip, and he found himself both less angry with Liv and less interested in her. I accept. Now, quick cleaning. To work! Dazen passed the first unlit torch in the tunnel without touching it. A torch could be a trap. He pressed on through the tight confines of the tunnel. The tunnel wasn't that tight, and the blackness wasn't the dark. He could go through worse. He would go through worse, gladly to get out of here. <sighs> no going back. Never. Perhaps a hundred paces later, he came to another torch, and he paused. The light of his green Luxon ball was feeble, and it was consuming his only Luxon. He didn't know how long it was going to have to last him. Hopefully only minutes, but just in case. He studied the torch like it was a serpent. The tunnel was too tight to comfortably carry a normal torch with the attendant open flames and dripping pitch. To carry a normal torch without burning yourself down here, you'd have to hold it directly in front of you. In his usual, profligately drafting way, his brother had made Lux torches, made of a mundane shaft of wood. 
The ends had panels of imperfectly drafted yellow, covered completely by a thin layer of luxon or glass, or even waxed leather. Sealed against the air, the yellow luxon lay dormant. When you wanted light, you simply peeled back the sealant and had a perfect single-spectrum yellow light source. Depending on how much air was allowed through and how well the yellow had been drafted, the Lux torch could last from an hour to four hours. Hideously expensive to buy and horribly difficult to craft, his brother had liked to draft them to show off his superchromacy. This one was his brother's work, no doubt. Of course, his brother must have done most, if not all, of the work on this prison himself. The Lux torch was set in a simple iron bracket. Dazen squinted at the little piece of iron as if it held the mysteries of the universe, but it was just iron. The fit didn't look particularly tight. It didn't look like there was any way it could be some kind of a switch, so that when he lifted the torch, it would pop up and trigger a trap. But it felt wrong. <laughs> oh, damn. Damn it, damn it, damn it, shit! Oh, a little dumb to be hollering when you're trying to escape, don't you think? Dazen felt a shock run down his spine. For one long instant, he thought it was all over. Then he recognized the voice. Dead man. But not as dead as you'll be soon, I think. I thought you were back in the wall, where I left you. I don't need you out here. <laughs> thought you could lose me so easily. You're an amusing little man, Gavin Guile. No, you're Gavin. You're the dead man. I'm done with that. I'm done with losing. Now go away. I'm burning light here. Bet the torch is trapped? I know the torch is trapped. But he didn't know the torch was trapped. That was fear. Paranoia. He couldn't shake it. He studied the torch. He couldn't touch it. Forget it. You've probably got 15 minutes left with the green. You might make it. If you don't sit around and talk to yourself. <laughs> Dazen stumbled down the hall. He was in bad shape. If he didn't get sleep and real food soon... No! Worry about that later. The tunnel curved slowly, and Dazen thought he was spiraling slowly upward. It felt like it was taking forever. It felt unbearable. But it couldn't go on for too long, could it? How deep would Gavin have dug? Deeper than you can dig out, of course. He was always that little bit smarter than you. Shut up! Dazen's leg folded, and he fell. He caught himself, but it almost cost him his concentration. He almost lost the green ball. You remember how you were father's favorite? I wonder if Gavin's his favorite now. You were always afraid father would realize how much smarter Gavin was than you, weren't you? <laughs> Shut up! Or Holm. He had almost lost his only light. He couldn't imagine being trapped in utter darkness with only the voices in his head. Why don't you go back to that Lux torch? Your green might last that long. Of course, that Lux torch might be dead. Been there a long time. They don't last forever. Not even your brothers. The darkness was getting stronger, closing in around the little one circle of green light. Green was supposed to make him feel wild and strong, but even wild animals can have their hearts burst. And the feeling of strength isn't the same thing as strength. Jason <laughs> hobbled on because there was nothing else to do. His body was betraying him. Black spots swam before his eyes. He stumbled again, and this time he fell, barely cradling his dwindling green globe to his chest. He stood shakily, and even the dead man was silent. Then, salvation. He saw another Lux torch. 
He moved toward it, slowly, carefully. It's trapped. You know that, right? I bet the last one wasn't trapped. He probably is so much smarter than you that he knew you'd go past that one and then get desperate. He's got you figured pretty. Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! The green ball was smaller than Dazen's fist now. He had five minutes left, maybe. Still, he didn't rush. He examined closely the iron bracket this torch sat in. It won't be a simple lever trap. Come now, Dazen would be more elegant than that, don't you think? Dazen. I'm Dazen now. But he didn't even turn. He was right. It couldn't be a simple lever trap. The bracket was solid. He stepped back and extended one finger and pressed on the bracket, ready to jump backward if anything happened. Nothing. He squinted his eyes, trying to see into the superviolet, but he couldn't tell if he was failing or there was simply no superviolet Luxon to see. He poked the torch. It shifted in the bracket, and he jumped back. His leg betrayed him again, and he tumbled to the floor, barely able to break his fall by pushing himself against the wall. But other than a complete loss of his dignity, nothing happened. Loss of your dignity? You're bloody and dirty and naked. You smell like shit and you talk to yourself. What dignity do you have to lose? I want you to know when I get out of here, you're gone. I don't need you anymore. Mm, need is such an interesting word, isn't it? Get to the Evernight. Let's see what you've got, brother. Dason grabbed the Lux Torch. And nothing happened. Oh, hold him. Damn you, Gavin. I really thought you were that diabolically clever. Dazen pulled back the little clay tab over one square face of the Lux Torch, and a slow glow began emanating as the air got in through its many tiny holes. The torch was still half full of yellow Luxon. With the quality of Gavin's drafting, that would be plenty. Hope broke over Dazen's heart like the sun breaking over the hills as that pure yellow light blossomed. He jostled the Lux Torch, and the light bloomed full. He peeled off another clay face and basked in the glow. There was no trap. He was really going to make it. He dug a fathom below that bastard's petard. Drafting from Luxon was hardly inefficient. The light being cast was cast because the Luxon had been drafted incorrectly. So the only correct yellows you got were those shed through spectral scattering, and even then your own abilities and efficiency as a drafter dictated what was possible. But Dazen wasn't trying to draft something useful. He merely wanted to taste yellow. It leaked into him in a slow swirl, and after 16 years of its absence, it was glorious. He felt sharper, clearer, able to go on carefully. The bare fact that Gavin hadn't booby-trapped this Lux Torch didn't mean that there weren't traps in the tunnel. Even if he'd never guessed that his brother would get out this way, he might have worried that someone would find it from the other end. Yes, he'd have to be careful. <sighs> Thank you, Yellow. Invigorated, Dazen walked on. Not three minutes more, and he saw the rays of the Lux Torch illuminate the mouth of a chamber. He slowed. This will be where he gets you. Shut up. He examined everything minutely. The walls of his tunnel before it emerged into the chamber, the floor, the ceiling, anything he could see in every spectrum. His heart pounded, but there was nothing. No hidden tripwires, no hinges, no inexplicable holes in the wall that would shoot out some kind of gory death. He edged forward slowly. He could take his time. The torch would last. Of course, his brother could be coming at any moment. The chamber was perhaps ten pieces wide in either direction. 
There was a small table, small chair, small cot. No food, though. This must have been a room where Gavin rested while he constructed the prison. Dazen watched where he put every step. I'm telling you, this is where he gets you. Go ahead, go lie down in that cot. Want to bet you never wake up? Dazen didn't touch the cot. He wasn't going to sleep anyway, not with a Lux torch slowly burning out. He had discarded the clay caps, hadn't even thought about keeping them, damn it. Stupid mistake. Not that he had pockets or free hands to carry them in. Still, something glimmered on the far wall, directly over the tunnel mouth. Oh, by all means, go look at the shiny, right? That couldn't possibly be a trap, no. Why don't you stay here, and I'll go on without you? Then we'll both be happy. By all means, I'm not the one talking to myself. You can leave me behind whenever you're good and ready. Go to hell. It's over by the tunnel. I have to go that way regardless. Still, Dazen went carefully. It was easy to get fixated, get tunnel vision. Ah! Bugger off! Dazen blinked, rubbed his eyes, studied the floor, tested every step. He couldn't go at this pace for long, or he'd never get out. But it was worth it here. No matter that the dead man was mocking him, he did have a point. Whatever the shiny was, it was etched into the rock. Perhaps a natural vein of some ore? Gold? Dazen knew nothing about mining, but he was deep under the earth somewhere. The distribution looked random at first, but as he got closer... Trap! I'm telling you, trap! I'm not touching it, you asshole! Stop distracting me! Trap it might be, but Dazen wasn't going to put his head right underneath that thing to step into the tunnel beyond it if it was going to snap down without a moment's notice. Keeping his distance, he stood up on tiptoe and held the Lux Torch high. Whatever it was, it sat deep in grooves and only fell full under the torch's light when he lifted it. He froze. This was the trap. He needed to do something immediately, but he didn't know what. In an instant, the Luxon, for it was Luxon in the grooves, ignited and glowed a dull, infernal red. Dazen remembered the formulation. Gavin's work, a blend of yellow and red so unstable that even being hit with light would cause it to combust. He felt a stab of fury. And then the whole design bloomed with light, ignited by the light of his Lux torch. It was a single, roughly-shaped word, two paces across, drawn with a jaunty, cocky hand. It unfurled in yellow-red fire. Almost. Dazen's feet became unstuck, and he leapt backward and ran for the tunnel behind him. The light of his Lux Torch, which had been directed solely forward as he'd entered the chamber, now cut into deep grooves in the wall back behind him that he hadn't even seen. These flashed to fire, the fires cut ropes, and the floor dropped out from under him. He tumbled head over heels into the darkness, down a tube, then abruptly dropped straight onto a flat surface. He impaled himself on several tiny spikes, not longer than his first knuckle. It took his breath and his Luxon. Hellstone. Then that floor swung open, and he tumbled down farther, farther. He smashed into a door that swung open, and then shut behind him. Dizzy, back and arms bleeding from tiny stab wounds, and disoriented, Dazen nonetheless immediately knew where he was, by the light that stabbed through his eyelids, mocking him. He rolled over, opened his eyes. The room was shaped like a squashed ball, one hole above for food and water, one hole below for his waist. 
and in the round, curving wall of his new yellow cell, sat the dead man. I told you so. <laughs> Lightbringer Saga, Book 2, The Blinding Knife, Part 2, is a graphic audio production. Copyright 2012, Brent Weeks. Published by arrangement with Hachette Book Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. Production copyright 2012 by The Cutting Corporation Incorporated. All rights reserved. With performances by Christopher Sheeran, Joe Brack, Karen Novak, Stephen Carpenter, Kimberly Gilbert, Elliot Dash, Tracy Oliveira, Michael John Casey, Laura Reichert, David Coyne, Richard Rowan, David Harris, Tim Getman, James Konachek, Eric Messner, Susan Linsky, Thomas Keegan, Daniel Sontag, Thomas Penny, Michael Glenn, Casey Platt, Colleen Delaney, Dylan Lynch, Drew Copas, Anastasia Wilson, Patrick Bussing, Tim Carlin, Nick DePinto, Alyssa Wilmoth, Joel Santner, Johan Detweiler, Christopher Graybill, Bradley Smith, Robert Collins, Nanette Savard, James Lewis, Dolores King-Williams, Gary Tells, Yasmin Twazon, Evan Casey, Ken Jackson, Jessica Lefko, Katie Karkoff, Elizabeth Jernigan, Barbara Pinellini, Ren Casey, and Lily Beacon. Adapted and directed by Johann Detweiler. Produced by Richard Rowan and Dwayne Beeman. Executive Producers James Cutting, Mary Cutting, and Angie Cornette. Dialogue Editing and Graphic Audio Sound Design by Johann Detweiler. Featuring original music composed and performed by Dan Smith and Johann Detweiler. If you enjoyed the Lightbringer Saga, be sure to look for R.A. Salvatore's Saga of the First King and John Zakor and Lawrence Ganim's Nuclear Bombshell series. Available now in graphic audio at Road Stops Everywhere at 1-800-670-5220 or at www.graphicaudio.net. Keep listening for exciting previews of other graphic audio material. Yeselnik's armies march across haunts, driving the peasants before them. Lawlessness and chaos reign, spreading throughout the land like a cancer. All hope lies in Branson Garabond, but he is a beaten and broken man. When all the world balances on the brink of destruction, haunts will cry out for a new savior. But will he answer the call? Find out 
in the thrilling conclusion of the Saga of the First King, Book 4, The Bear. Available now in graphic audio. If you can't find that graphic audio title you're looking for, go to www.graphicaudio.net where you can order it in CD format or digital download. If you're on the road, call 1-800-670-5220. That's 1-800-670-5220. Or www.graphicaudio.net. And if you're looking for a great way to try out a different graphic audio series, check out our convenient and easy-to-store long-haul box sets, which contain up to five books of a series. Available only at www.graphicaudio.net. Be sure to sign up for our monthly newsletter or follow us on Twitter. <laughs>